And now on Radio Maria England, we present Awakenings, Testimonies of Faith and Conversion. Welcome to this uh, broadcast, Awakenings on Radio Mirror England. I'm Father Sam Randall, and today for my guest, I've got Sister Barbara Claire Kelly. Hello, Sister Barbara. Good morning, Father Sam. It's lovely to have you. It uh, really is. You're a member of the Society of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The Sisters of the Blessed Virgin sisters Mary. Sisters of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I like that very much. That's so nice. Uh, being a sister of uh, the Virgin Mary is wonderful. So we're going to come to how you uh, um, now find that new vocation. But I wonder if you could begin with the beginning and the story of your childhood in South Africa. Oh, certainly. Um, well, I was born, as you say, in South Africa, uh, raised in an Anglican family, um, my mother was an Anglican. My father was actually raised a Catholic, but he he's uh, distanced himself from that um, in adolescence, actually. So we were all brought, my brother and I were brought up as Anglicans, and I went to school with the sisters of the community of St. Mary the Virgin in South Africa, um, which is the community, the Anglican community, that I later joined. Right. So I want to ask you a bit about this South African background and how it impacted on you, because um, I think you've given away your your age, so uh, I I could work out the the year you were born, which is quite an important year, not just because... uh, you were born uh, then, but uh, in 1948, before you were born, I think, yes, I'm right, aren't I, sister? Yes. Yes. Um, the Afrikaans took political power, in surprisingly, in South Africa. Yes, that's right. That's yeah. correct. So, um, and I know that the African National Congress had started in 1912. But they really took off as partly as a response to the ANC in 1950. So you're born at a crucial period in the politics of South Africa. Yes, correct. Well, um, one thing to perhaps say to you is that um, my father was blind. So he could not see colour. That's wonderful. Anyway, I mean, yeah, I meant that nicely, sister. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing to say about that is, um, in terms of my upbringing, he had spent some of his own early childhood in India, and he, you know, had he had he spoke Hindi, um, so we were brought up in this multicultural setting, and. We knew, my brother and I, that everybody was created in the image of God. Beautiful. Color had no part in that. So that was the kind of upbringing I had. And That's that was beautiful. By the community um, in, that I was at school with and later joined because they took a specific stance against apartheid. And some of them were even in court 
some of those sisters were even in court for their beliefs. That's that's extraordinary. I mean, the Anglican Church in South Africa at this period, I mean, everyone knows of uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. But um, I, I, I visited, I know, the Murfield community, and they were heavily involved. And uh, did you know Trevor Huddleston? Did you ever come across him? I met him personally, but I knew some of the others extremely well. And the two communities worked together for many, many years in Soweto, what was then called Sapphire Town. Yeah. We had a sister called Sister Dorothy Raphael, who was Dorothy Maud, her secular name, and she was the brother of the British High Commissioner, Sir John Maud, and she worked very closely with Trevor Huddleston in Sapphire Town to provide relief and to challenge the government. The Anglican Church, as did the Catholic Church, took um, a very strong stand against apartheid, and many people, many priests were put in jail for, for their stance that they took. So your your faith is being nurtured in this wonderful, tolerant and also political uh, context. Is that fair? Yeah, I would say it was um, also very, there was a sense of, of critic, being critical as well of the um, status quo of apartheid. But at the same time, we ourselves were held back from that and very, very loving. But I would also want to say that South Africa is a, is a country where a lot of it is desert. Right. Um, deserts, the Karoo, um, the Namib in, in Namibia, all of those had an influence on my spirituality growing up, that to go out into the desert was to, to meet God. So there's these two emphases of the desert and of this very critical mm. political situation that were working together, I think, in my soul, I think. Uh, did, did that sort of alignment, I mean, the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa was sort of supportive of the regime. I'm, I mean, there are obviously loads of exceptions, but, um, but um, the way the Anglican and the Catholic Church um, aligned itself with the poor and the marginalised, I mean, how did that work out with regard to sort of um, church loyalties and even numbers? Oh, I think it made people um, very aware that to, to be a Christian at all was to place yourself um, very consciously um, in, a, in a quite dangerous situation. Um, you know, that yeah. it, it's not a casual choice. No. Uh, I remember I used to, um, when I was training as a nurse, attend the um, Anglican Cathedral in Johannesburg, and the dean there was somebody called Gonville French Beta, and he was certainly imprisoned. And so we knew always when um, the Eucharist was celebrated in the cathedral, there would be plain clothes police in the congregation um, watching and listening to every word he said so mm. that if he stepped out of line, he'd be arrested after the liturgy. It's all, it's all so extraordinary now, thinking of those, those times. Indeed, yes. Um, Nelson Mandela, d did he have a particular um, commitment? Say, Was he an Anglican or 
Methodist. Is he? How lovely. I love these things. That's so splendid. He's a Methodist. That's wonderful. And the Methodist Church would, of course, has a strong, strong tradition of social justice advocacy, doesn't it? I mean, Wesley in England is just really wonderful, you know. Yeah, and anti-slavery work. Yes. So that's good. Um, I, just just as an aside, I had a dinner once with Trevor Huddleston. That, that might tell you how old I am, sister. <laughs> Quite. Yeah, exactly. Well, he, he was in a wheelchair and pretty doddery. So it's just... Um, Murfield's a very interesting community, I, I always thought. Very interesting. So you're there with the uh, community of St Mary the Virgin and confirmation. And uh, so you're confirmed as an Anglican. Tell me about that and how old you were and um, how that impacted on your life. I was I was 11 um, and I was already beginning to have that sense of it being possible to, to give your life to God. Mm. So I took that step of confirmation very, very seriously. And for me, I think even then I had an awareness that this was the first step along a quite long road. Um, that it would one step would lead to other things. Um, so it was a very important step, and my first Holy Communion was the same. Wonderful. Uh, do you think that this sort of political hotbed that um, this the context for the church uh, did that make you think about the cost of discipleship? I wouldn't have put it at the age like that. No, not at 11, but, I mean, you sort of had an understanding that faith costs yeah. something. What I do remember is the, the bishop who confirmed me was somebody called Edward Knapp Fisher. And I can remember him taking a friend and myself to a mission hospital some 60 miles north of the the town where I lived so that we could actually see some of how the majority of South, South Africa's people lived, because yeah. he himself would make regular visits there right. and was really enlightened on his part to take two, you know, quite young girls along to see what it the actual situation was. Extraordinary to do that. I mean, for our listeners who perhaps are too um, young to know about this, these townships were sort of almost like slums or... Um, with very uh, not utilities, don't think that they were these shacks and temporary built places, and uh, apartheid infected every area of life, education, everything you can think of, just even everything to do with um, sport, recreation, everything. It was there, so and the, um, it was just a difficult time. So, um, would you like to add anything to that, sister, to just help our listeners understand some of the some of the uh, context of your faith and your growing yes. up in that? Yes, I can remember. I think it was after I'd left school, and I was living alongside some Dominican sisters in Johannesburg, and we formed a little group of people who were following a rule of life. Um, I mean, we all went out to work, and it was through them through this little group that I actually was able to make my first visit to a township and see these shucks mm. self and these kind of subhuman conditions in which uh, many people were forced to live. And it enlarged my awareness um, because in my nursing training, um, we had actually, um, I think it was in my midwifery period, 
um, you know, done uh, done part of our training in in a township. Um, so awareness was increasing, I think. But my sights were set on community by then, and I was already beginning to look to England and and entering a religious community then. I see. Um- in, in June 1963, you had an important um, um, encounter. The, the Sister Superior, I think, of uh, the community, the Anglican community of Samaria Virgin. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes, indeed. Um, she, her name, she was the Sister Superior. Her name was Sister Joan, and um, she was a great figure in our lives. And I can remember her um, during a divinity class um, talking to us about how it was possible to fall in love with God. And I can remember being very stirred by this. It meant a great deal to me. And and so I kind of felt that happening to me and that I felt then that my life would take this path of religious life. I mean, I knew I had a long way to go because I still had some three years of schooling left and a professional training after that but it was round about then that that I knew that, that God was actually calling me and there was a day when I had my Bible and I was praying to God to to show me what would be my path in life and the Bible fell open on Psalm 45 in the Hebrew numbering and hearken O daughter consider and incline your ear Forget also your own people and your father's house, for he is your Lord, therefore bow down before him. And that was confirmatory, Mm. that that would be my calling. And I did not know then how important that those verses would come to be in the liturgy of profession for a religious sister. I had no idea then, but I just knew that that was the way that God was speaking to me through those verses at the age of whatever, 13, 14. It's, it sort of links with confirmation. I mean, people forget that confirmation, the laying on of hands, is the setting aside for death originally. And really? uh, yeah, so sort of sacramentally, people forget that uh, dying to self and living for Christ. Mm. And um, yes. this this is another dying in a way, and and a coming alive, isn't it? Mm, that's right. Um, so you're telling us that this psalm is used for, at the profession when religious sisters are professed, Psalm 45. Yes. How oh, lovely. Um, uh, of course, religious sisters take all sorts of shapes and sizes, don't they? All sorts of different charisms and uh, uh, ministries. Did you feel then you thought that you would be going, uh, you felt called to an enclosed order? No, at that stage, I I didn't feel that at all. Mm. Um, I felt that I needed, I felt then that God was calling me and that I needed to be in, in a kind of community which had a strong prayer framework but that was also responding to apostolic need. Yeah, okay, I understand that. Um, This is one of the, I think, misunderstandings about enclosed life. It's not an escape from, it's very much an embrace of the world, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I find myself later in life now in an enclosed community, Mm. Um, but that is very much part of the later calling of my life, what you might call an unfolding 
conversion, mm-hmm. things that present for me now that were not present there when I was younger. Uh, yes, so it's very much a going towards the world. It's not an escaping from it. It's taking responsibility for the world, isn't it, sister? Would you say that's fair? Absolutely. Um, there, but there's a sense of um, being there for the world, mm. there for the church, mm. uh, as well as one's own personal commitment and personal relationship with our Lord. Mm. You mentioned love earlier, and I think that people need to understand that the the religious vocation, it isn't about, or it shouldn't be about, rules and having to do things. It's falling in love, isn't it? Isn't it responding to the heartbeat of love? Absolutely. You put it so well, Father Sam, that responding to the heartbeat of love. But I think there are the, the need to... In a sense, I think the experience of love can be so overwhelming, I think. Mm. It supports need to be built in to enable one to actually stand and walk forward in this way of love. And that's where what what might be sort of termed slightly negatively rules and regulations come in. They're actually training a person, training one in the process of loving. And there's also the fact that one is called within a community. So it's not everybody doing their own thing, but the whole community needs to function together as a unit. Mm. So there again, there are, um, it has to have some shape. Um, it's like the, the body needs a skeleton, yeah. or otherwise it can't move. That's a lovely way of putting it. Yeah, sort of structure and um, it's like anything. Uh, if if love is is the good food, it's the plate and, and everything that goes makes it possible to eat it. Um, so, but as a religious sister, are you all encouraged to do something secular uh, before you go off or do some sort of training? Um, I think there's a, a sense that people... I think it depends very much on the individual, but there is a sense that people need to have a certain maturity um, before they lay down their life in consecrated life. Um, that sense of, as I say, of having grown and matured in spirituality enough to make a commitment. Beautiful. Okay, yeah, I mean, you're taking us now to right. Um, about this commitment and I think this is a nice time for a pause and a music break right Welcome to Awakenings. I'm Father. I'm Father Sam Randall, and you're listening to Awakenings. And this is Radio Maria England. 
And this week and today, I've got with me as our special guest, Sister Barbara Clare. And so far, we've been discussing her early life um, up to the moment she's professed. But Sister uh, Barbara Clare hasn't yet told us uh, what she did. We talked about um, maturing um, in order to prepare, in a way, for the religious life. And I'd like to ask you, Sister, what did you do um, as part of the maturing? Yeah. Well, it, it was all a bit unexpected, really. Um, I was going to go to university and read modern languages. And before the university term started, um, I, I managed to get a job as a carer in a nursing home locally. And within a couple of days, I changed my mind um, and I decided to put in for nursing. So, um, and it was amazing. They had a vacancy for a student nurse in our local hospital. So three weeks later, I began a nursing training. So that was three years and a year of midwifery and some time in England, a year in England after that. So, but it was all, as I say, a bit sudden, unexpected, but I have never regretted that choice um, of becoming a nurse. And it's something that has been with me all my community life in various ways. And I think the important things were, I think, the nights, I think, caring for people who perhaps were unconscious through a long, dark night, being alongside the dying, being able to be a Christian presence for them as they handed over their lives to God, or maybe even not, um, to be there for the chronically ill, and to be there sometimes alongside people who had been literally severely wounded. Um, mm. Yes, many things. Um, just so if you didn't hear the first part, um, Sister Barbara Clare grew up in South Africa. So uh, the, she was at hospital there in, in South Africa and uh, then then to England. I often, when I've been in hospital, Sister, I think about the sacrament of the nurse, the sacrament of presence. Uh, just being there uh, is quite extraordinary. Um, yeah. Um, it's a good way to, to uh, train, isn't it, to, for the religious life? Indeed. And in those days, um, it was what um, somebody called a bit old school, which was actually quite a good thing. And there was, because it was a small hospital, there was a family atmosphere there. Um, and, you know, and there was a proper house mother, and we all lived in. So in that way, it was a very good preparation for community life, plus the discipline of being on time for shifts, you know, and yeah. learning to relax afterwards and having each other. And so it was a very you know, good community experience. Lovely. Yes. Um, you, you talked to me earlier, not now, but um, another time, about uh, life being a series of conversions. Um, and uh, so there isn't a single conversion, but a series of deepening conversions, do you think, Sister? Um, I think so. And there are, there are strong moments, and then there are the, the others, perhaps smaller moments, that can almost slip in. Um, unawares. Yeah. I would want to bring in here the figure of Abraham, because earlier on I quoted from Psalm 45, forget also your own people and your father's house. And then there, there is Abraham, uh, leave your country and your kindred and go to the land that I will show you the call of Abraham. And 
I mean, I don't get complete with Abraham, obviously, but there's that sense of leaving my country, which I hadn't expected to do, actually, and coming to a new country um, as part of responding to God's call. And at that stage, we still had sisters in South Africa, and I didn't know whether I'd be sent back or whether the move to England would be permanent. So there was very much a sense of, I can still remember getting on that plane way back in 1972, to step on that plane to begin a whole new phase of life. And it was the outward journey that mirrored the inner Mm -hmm. journey. And I wouldn't have expressed it like that. And I think I've probably only seen it like that many, many, many years later. But that's what it was, you know, to physically put my feet on a plane and go to somewhere else to begin something radically new. Sister, how important do you think dislocation is to the spiritual life? Ah, well, there's dislocation and there is stability. Yeah. Now, dislocation, I think, in the, the mind and heart of God, I think, is, is always in order to be more directly embedded and placed in God, because you can't ever be dislocated from God. He will not allow that. Um, but then, having been emplaced, um, we can sometimes try to dislocate ourselves because we don't quite fancy the place we've been put in. No. <laughs> yeah. But there we are. So we, we embed ourselves in God, and Christ embeds himself in us. I mean, the incarnation is the profoundest story of dislocation. Yes. Yeah. And uh, yes, and so this calling out to go somewhere new, to, to go, it needn't be physical, need it, sister. It, it could be entirely uh, a matter of, I, I suppose, cognitive, not just physical. Uh, but yeah, dislocation is, is certainly, you must, did you feel nervous with your setting out steps on, on the planes, uh, on, the, on the steps of the plane and thinking, oh, wow, what am I doing? I don't think so. I think I was full of sort of youthful optimism. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. I knew that I was doing what I had to do, and that carried me across, I think. Yeah. Uh, and that inner stability is the thing that can, can support us, whatever life's adversities and things throw at us. Yes, indeed. So you're coming now to um, the, uh, is it the mother house you're going to of uh, the Anglican community of St. Mary the Virgin? Is it the, is it the, is it the mother house you're going to? That's right, yes, and it's still there in Wantage in Oxfordshire. Uh, if our listeners aren't Catholic and, um, I mean, honestly, uh, you know, no idea, how would you explain um, a religious community to them? Oh, uh, well, I think the first thing to go back to is the Acts of the Apostles, um, where Christians came together to read the scriptures and to break bread, and then they will be coming to lay their possessions at the feet of the apostles, and they formed communities of people who were living together. So that is the origin of religious communities. And there came to be um, single women 
and single men who would also come together in communities. I think there's a reference also in the Acts of the Apostles to the four unmarried daughters of Philip the Evangelist. The evangelist. Yeah, there is. And that may well be a reference to an early religious community. So that's going right back to the New Testament. Then you have the fourth century, and there is St. Anthony of Egypt. And there is the peace of the church. The church up till then had been a persecuted church, and there had been a certain edge to Christian life. With the peace of the church under Constantine, that all fell away, and it became quite comfortable to, to be a Christian. And there was a sense of searching for the edge of life, the edge of Christian life. So Antony it was who, he, he put his sister into a convent, interestingly. There must have been a convent for him to put her into. And he went off into the desert. And he went to the desert by the Red Sea. And I have actually visited that monastery that he founded there, where he lived in a cave. I've been there. And from that grew um, the new form of religious life, which exists up till this day. And that monastery that he founded has lasted all these centuries. beginning of consecrated life. Um, it began there in Egypt, and it spread from there throughout the civilized world. Yeah, and I think people can forget how it shaped Europe. I mean, even the geography, even the landscape uh, um, monasteries, we can forget because um, the, the communities are not so visible, but with, with regard to healthcare, law, everything, uh, these monastic communities did so, so much. Now, I want to come to your um, uh, receiving the habit. That's how you say it, isn't it? Um, your profession. Oh, well, there are two different things. Receiving the habit yes. is, is, is distinct from prof, um, life profession. So I received the habit in 1973, and that's where I became, I was then novice Barbara Clare, um, and received the white veil of a novice. And then in 1976, I in those days, we didn't have simple profession, and I took life vows. And in that community, we took the evangelical councils of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And um, so that's when I was professed for life. Okay. Yeah. Can I ask why Barbara Clare, as, as the names you've, you chose or were chosen for you? Yeah, well, we um, had the firm belief, and it's the correct one, that um, consecrated life is a living out of our original baptismal calling. So in our community, we are encouraged to take our baptismal names. So Barbara, but then there was more than one Barbara, so that's when I added my second name, baptismal name also. So that's why I had double barrel name. Of Sister Barbara Clare. I see. It's nothing to do with the saints, Saint Barbara, and uh... no. Although I have actually quite a devotion to both of those saints. Saint Barbara is very strong in the Middle East, and I visited her church in in Old Cairo, and then Saint Clare of Assisi. Yes, they're both strong saints for me. Yeah, uh, this may surprise you. Saint Barbara, I think, is the patron saint of of the Gunners 
in the army. I used to be in the army. Consent of um, engineers. Yeah, that's right. It is. <laughs> I so I serve with the Royal, uh, yeah, our uh, Royal Engineers. Yeah, so that's lovely. Uh, saint for, for the religious and saint for, for the army. So it's wonderful. And of course, as Saint Claire, presumably it's it's uh, um, Claire uh, Saint Francis's Claire, so to speak. That's right. Yeah. So you make your life profession. Was that a big decision for you or was it just absolutely natural? It's another one of those conversion moments. Oh, it's very, very powerful for me. It was absolutely life-changing experience. And it was um, encompassed by a fortnight of retreat, 10 days before, um, which was a guided retreat by the, the novice mistress and the uh, addresses she gave were all on, this, on the theme of consecration, drawing from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And then the day of profession, and then there was four days in total silence after that unconducted. So that two weeks plus the one day in the middle, mm. absolutely, you come out of that not the same as you went into it. Um, total change, yeah. It's a sort of spiritual pressure cooker. Yeah, and I think St. Paul comes to mind, be, uh, I think it's Romans, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. No, it's no. Romans eight twenty six. Thank you. I'm a former Protestant. <laughs> well, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, okay, yeah, it's, that's really good. I bet people are checking up now. Um, so then, you, you didn't spend all your time uh, with um, in in your with in wanted, did you? You spent some time in Hare Hills, I believe. That's right. That was three years when we found it. We had a because we. We did actually run institutions like with um, drug addicts, um, mother and baby homes, um, homes for older people, those kind of things. But we also had what we called neighborhood ministry, where we would have a house in a neighborhood and we would work with the local parish priest, um, whatever the needs were. So, yes, um, we in 1992, we opened a small house. It's not there now. And there were four of us in the house. And we lived our monastic structure of life, but we not enclosed. So we would um, engage in whatever ministries presented themselves to us. Yeah. I think what happened to me was I think there's mainly people coming to the house who wanted to talk about their spiritual journey and leading retreats and that kind of thing. I, it's a it's a city I know very well. I did some of my ministry there, and the cathedral I know as well. And in, in Leeds, it had a big impact on my myself and my wife um, that that area. So yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those. It's a very interesting city. So I understand you became mother of the community. I did. That was a great surprise, really. And there was, it was um, nine, a nine year period of being at the mother house and trying to enable and foster the, the life of the community um, at a particularly challenging time because there was that sense of new ways of living community and how could they be held within the existing structure. So yes, that's right. It was, it was quite an, an interesting time. Um, there's going to be another one of your conversion moments uh, coming up, but before that, um, should we have a, another music break? Certainly.
Welcome. Welcome to Awakenings. I'm Father Sam Randall, and this is Radio Mirror England. And today I have with me Sister Barbara Clare. And uh, we've been listening to, to Sister Barbara Clare's journey from South Africa and to her profession in in uh, in Wantage in Oxford and she became a member of the Anglican community of St Mary the Virgin and uh, from Wantage to Leeds and probably back uh, to to Wantage again sister correct yeah now um something significant happened in November 2009 we we your life you feel is, is a series of conversions and deepening into the mystery of God um, so something happened, another one of these moments, I think, that precipitated it in November 2009. Something made it possible. Well, um, if you remember, Saint, well, he's now Saint John Henry Newman, um, was coming up for beatification by then Pope Benedict XVI. Mm. And I started to, I thought, need to know a bit about this. So I began to read about John Henry Newman and his journey into the full communion of the Catholic Church. And I remember reading one of the biographies of him and discovered his great devotion to the early fathers of the church and his sense that he wanted to be um, in the, that part of the church that was in continuity with the early fathers of the church. And that, that was what began to draw me, because I thought, but that's what I think. Um, and watching what was happening in the Anglican Communion at the time as well. So things were beginning to stir for me at that time. And then came um, Pope Benedict XVI's document, Anglicanorum Chaitibus, which allowed for groups of Anglicans to um, move across um, into the full communion of the Catholic Church um, in such a way that they would be able to bring something of their Anglican heritage with them. Um, as a gift to the church. And so the, a number of us were beginning to feel, well, is God leading us this way? So that was the beginning of it. I, I see. Um, th that must have been not that easy, really, uh, living in a community. I don't suppose everyone felt the same always. Mm. Well, um, Mother Winsome, who was mother of the community then and she's still the mother of our community here made it absolutely clear that um, everybody was free to follow their own conscience and she set up a very fair discernment process um, it all took quite a long time but she was very very careful um, in her handling of this extremely um, difficult situation that that there should be not a division of heart even if there had to be a division of community so you know it was a very critical time for us all then what's needed in these sorts of moments is the spirit of generosity i think in yes indeed yes. 
Uh, we, we are so prescriptive in the way we want to say how God is for, for each, you know, because if I've had that experience of God, that must be definitive. But it's not necessarily so, is it, sister? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's allowing each person to go uh, on their, their journey. So after discussions in your community, what happened? Well, eventually um, the decision was taken that, you know, some of us would make the journey into the full communion of the Catholic Church. And it was recognised at that point that we would need to leave and uh, leave one place. We would not be able to remain there. Uh, but we couldn't make that step until we had somewhere to move to. Mm-hmm. And the Benedictine community of St. Celia's Abbey in the Isle of Wight um, very, very generously agreed to have us. Uh, it was thought to be for a few weeks, but it turned out to be several months. And so that happened. And it was at that point we discovered you know, the procedure for our admission into the full communion of the Catholic Church would would be through the sacrament of confirmation. Did you ever hope, sister, that you could maintain uh, some sort of ecumenical community or or shape some sort of ecumenical community at Wantage? That we would be able to remain as two communities on one site, but for various reasons, that wasn't able to happen. Can I ask, sister, were were those external um, pressures or rather than internal or both? External pressures. In, with regard to the church's sort of trying to adjust to these new realities, uh, it, it's easier uh, to have clearer clearer lines, demarcations, than, um, than not, I meant. I think it was such a new situation yeah. for everybody that, that nobody quite knew what to think, really. So we were just having to step by step, you know, hand in God's hand, yeah. trust that he would work things out as he has done. Yeah. So you you, you say that uh, you had to go for confirmation. And yeah. uh, I'm going to ask, I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask, which saint did you choose, sister? Oh, no. Well, um, I, chose, well I chose the name... Benedicta as my confirmation name and there were three reasons for that and the first was um, our Lord blessed be the Lord the God of Israel secondly our lady Benedicta comes in Marian Antiphons and thirdly Saint Teresa Benedicta of the cross and it's really primarily her that she is my confirmation saint um, because she has travelled along a path with me for many, many years before I became a Catholic. And so I have a feeling that she very much oversaw this transition of mine. Beautiful. Um, Sister, you need to know that if I was a woman, I would have chosen her as well. Yes, I'm sure you would have. Yes, I would. <laughs> uh, I think that's just extraordinary. If Listeners, if, if uh, you don't know St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross, if you look up Edith Stein, she that's is right. so remarkable. Uh, really, she's worth reading. And there's some lovely books out on, on Edith Stein, an extraordinary uh, saint. And I think she's a saint for today, don't you, sister? Indeed. Yeah. What drew me to her in the beginning 
was that sense of um, living her vocation out on behalf of others yeah. um, beyond herself. Um, and even when the Gestapo came for her and her sister Rosa mm. in the Echt Carmel, she said, come Rosa, we go for our people. Amen. Yeah, she she wrote something about suffering for the Germans, for the world. So it wasn't just, it was, she's in the most extraordinarily wonderful saying. And, and again, we come to this idea of dislocation, don't we, sister? Um, yeah. This idea of conversion and dislocation, but uh, this inner peace. But I also would want to say that um, that sense of um, living vicariously was in our Anglican community from the start. And that sense of particularly praying the Psalms on behalf of the world and the church. So it was very natural when I found what was written in Edith Stein's writings to make that connection. And then eventually to come to the spiritual home that she herself found, the full communion of the Catholic Church. But in there from the beginning and goes right back to St. Paul and Colossians that I make up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Colossians 1.24, absolutely key. I mean, really just so exciting. Um, that verse, I've seen so many commentators who just trip over it or ignore it, even worse, because it doesn't fit. But I want you listeners to hear this. That is not just the vocation of the religious life for religious sisters. This is the vocation of Christians. We are called to live for the other. Uh, to pray for our neighbours, to care for our neighbours, to be Christ for them. Um, I'm really passionate about this. So you, you've gone to St. Celia's Abbey. That's known for its music, isn't it, sister? I beg your pardon? It's known for its music. I mean, it would be called St. Celia. On the Isle of Wight, the community you spent a few months with. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so that's known for that. So then where do, have you settled? Where have you gone to? Well... We, we found um, that there was a convent available for us in Birmingham. So that is where we are uh, in an urban situation, which has been a great blessing to us. We're on this hill where St. John Henry Newman lived. Wow. Um, his, his first home, the beginning of the oratory in, in England, was just um, 10 minutes walk away from here, uh, what's now the Maryville Institute. So we are where he would have walked um, in his time here in Birmingham. So that's a very creative place to be, to live out our life of prayer. And um, until this period of lockdown, to have the parish come into mass with us, um, to be embedded in a strong local Catholic community has been a great enrichment to us and a great beginning for our life as a Catholic community. Wonderful. Are there any noticeable differences between um, being an Anglican religious and a Catholic religious? Well, for us, it meant a transition into Benedictine way of life. We were a more Augustinian community. I see. Became we became Benedictines. So that actually meant um, when we reaffirmed our vows as Catholics, we actually took the Benedictine of our formula of stability, conversion of life, conversion, and obedience. So that was the, a big change for us. Um, so that was there. 
um, as a Catholic community, but as a Catholic Benedictine community. Because we came into the Catholic Church the route we did, we have retained, for instance, um, the Coverdale translation of the Psalms in our liturgy, right. which is authorised for the Ordinariate of Our Lady of Walsingham. So we've been able to bring those riches into the Catholic Church. We have brought our tradition of sarum, plain chant, into the Church with us. But at the same time, we draw on um, Catholic um, liturgy as it is today. It sounds like, Sister, you've got the best of both worlds. Well, we hope so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do, you, do you know when people talk to me they when they talk about the riches of anglicanism i mean you and i all understand this um me being a former anglican priest the even song is one of the glories don't you think sister of anglicanism well, it's many many years since i attended even okay <laughs> so we, have, we have catholic vespers oh yeah okay i mean uh, yeah is benedictine catholic and the shape of Vespers is Catholic, the fourth sponsor, the hymn, but we put the hymn in the monastic place after the psalm um, and follow Catholic liturgy. Uh, it sounds so beautiful. Um, the, the, the priests who come and celebrate with you and worship with you are very fortunate, I think. To well, we're very blessed in them as well. Of course, it's mutual, it's reciprocal, I'm absolutely sure. Um, so this, this profound conversion, so this now conversion of heart or conversion of life, um, how's that worked out in the life of the community? Has it made any sort of differences for you? Well, I think probably each individual sister would give you probably a different answer. Yes, that's true. Um, but I can only say how it's been for me. I think for me it has meant, um, as a Catholic, an unfolding on the spiritual level that's been completely unexpected and most profound, that spiritually things have opened up for me in a ways in which I would never have expected. And again, I think St. Teresa Benedicta mm. has seen this. Um, mm. Yeah. She, she's a great Latin scholar. Right. Uh, uh, you know, she's a, a translator, you know this, of course, of Aquinas and so on, but uh, into the German. But she was, uh, uh, yes. Am I right in thinking she also translated St. John Henry Newman? She did, John? sister. You're right. Yes, she did. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, he, she's, she was a, quite a, a polymath and a linguist. Uh, yes, quite brilliant. Um, I, he, of course, she's one of uh, the saints, isn't she, for, for Europe. She's one of the patron saints of Europe. Uh, St. John Paul II made her, and understandably, uh, with, with her huge philosophical and um, linguistic gifts. So that's great. And you share in all of that, of course, sister. I noticed you said that you were going to do modern languages. Are you a linguist as well? Well, I, I do have an interest in words and where they come from and how they shape life. Yes, indeed. That takes right back to, if you like, the incarnate word of God and the word of creation speaking and creation comes into being. It's all yes. about communication, isn't it, sister? Indeed. 
Well, I want to thank you on behalf of Radio Maria England for being a great communicator um, and uh, sharing with us your wonderful story. I, but before you go, there's two things I'd like you to do. Would you like to give a sort of last word uh, to any of our listeners, uh, those that are on a journey? And, and then, of course, I would like you to pray for us, if you could. So about um, those on whatever journey they are, wherever they are in their spiritual life, whether they're beginning or thinking about it or they're well on or they're even thinking about vocations. I think I would begin with the first word of the rule of St. Benedict, listen. Listen to God, listen to the church, listen to the world and go where it takes you. Beautiful. Listen with the ears of your heart. That's right, correct. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's all right, sister. Uh, okay. Do, could you then, would you like to pray for our listeners um, before you go, sister? Do you mean, uh, yeah. Yes. Heavenly Father, thank you for all who have been present on this programme today. We pray for all their needs and intentions which they have brought with them. We pray that you will reach deeply into their hearts, that they may feel comfort and solace in trouble, that they may find you deeply embedded within their hearts. Pray that you will bring them joy and consolation this day. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And we offer this prayer and ourselves in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sister Barbara Clare, you have been such a joy to talk to, and you've blessed me, and you've blessed our listeners. Thank you, and thank you for being where you are for us. Thank you for sharing your life and your faith and your prayers, and thank you for praying for us. And it's been a great privilege to be here this morning. Thank you so much, Father Sam. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Awakenings with Father Sam Randall. You can hear this episode rebroadcast on Wednesday at 9pm, Saturday at 4pm, and again on Monday at 2am. This series is available as a podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and other podcast services. You can also listen to it on our website www.radiomariaengland.uk If you would like to share your testimony, we would love, love to speak to you. Please email us at info at radiomariaengland.uk Thank you for joining us for Awakenings.